Hello and welcome to No Character Limit. My name is Robert Thurk, and today you are going to hear part 12, which is the final part of my book, God in the Frontier. This has been a really big accomplishment for me because this has just taken a lot of time in order to get this recorded, edited, and up and shared with everyone. For those of you wondering what is going to happen next, the good news is I have a whole nother book I want to share with you that I've written that I am currently in the process of recording, but the content will not at all be about religion, in case you started to wonder if this was a podcast about religion. Like I said in my very first episode, I love to explore a myriad of things in depth. And for now, this is the last time I'm going to be talking about religion related to God and the frontier and all of that. If you've enjoyed this piece, or if there's something that you'd like to share with me about my series, I would love to hear it. And once again, this whole piece was meant to be a discussion piece, and I am sure I've made errors or generalizations. I, too, am a result of my own psychological processes as well. But the whole purpose of writing this was to help grow personally and share things that I've learned with all of you. And if there's any mistakes or errors or nuance that I've missed throughout this entire book, please feel free to share them with me. I can do my best to correct it either in the notes or maybe even have an episode related to things I've gotten wrong or I've changed my mind on based on things I've written in the past. That's all up for debate on what else I could be doing in the future with this podcast on top of sharing my writing. But for now, we're about to say goodbye to God and the Frontier. And I hope you really are going to enjoy what I have to share next. So before we get into part 12 of God and the Frontier, I did want to make a note. When I wrote God and the Frontier, it was around the year 2020. And so it's been a while. I've sat on it and I've gone over it a few times. And then it took me a while to record it and then even longer to release it. And there's been a lot of things that have changed, and in this particular episode, I mention the United Methodist Church's stance on abortion. Recording this in 2022, a few months after Roe versus Wade has been repealed, has really caused a lot of waves in the religious world on what they do and don't support. And so in the show notes, I've also added an additional resource where the United Methodist Church goes into a lot more nuance than what I do in what I say in this writing piece. And some of you could make the argument that they're not really pro-choice, but there's also arguments that you could say that they were. 
and I'm not trying to get into all of that in this piece, but remember, I originally wrote this in 2020 where their stances weren't as in flux as they are now with the repeal of Roe versus Wade. I am not a member of Methodism, so I might have this wrong and anyone's free to correct me on that. And of course, before we get into it, please like, rate, or review if you've enjoyed this book. I, this has been a lot of work for me. And if you'd like to donate because you've appreciated listening to all this, I will give you a free PDF copy of my book based on any donation you choose to give. All right, so that takes care of all the housekeeping. Once again, thank you if you've gotten this far so much for listening to all of my book, God in the Frontier. So please enjoy part 12, and I'll see you with my next book. Chapter 9, Part 8, Believing into the Future. Everybody, regardless of their worldview, relies on faith to get them through their day, driven by all of these well-known and lesser-known psychological processes. Generalizations, stereotypes, and transference inform our decisions and interactions. Each filter laced with presumptions, falsehoods, and lies that we tell ourselves are real enough. We point to patterns that help reinforce our belief and ascribe meaning to them, while simultaneously going blind to the patterns that don't fit our narrative. And before we know it, Natural disasters are divine punishments despite never having direct evidence of the weather being decided by anything. And when that very same punishment comes to our homes and communities, the automatic switch of reframing comes in, and what was once a punishment is suddenly turned into a test of faith. A judgmental bystander can just as suddenly become the devout martyr. Reframing in the present as well as retroactively helps our experience fit the super-narrative that guides us. The falsehoods stack up to the point that we begin to defend irrational judgment, decisions that dehumanize, and the reinforcement of one super-narrative over another. The human condition compels us to work with whatever narrative we have to, to ensure that we aren't the bad guys. All of these psychological quirks and processes intertwine and wash over us as naive realism, which then creates a sum greater than its parts. For centuries, the Haudenosaunee were a dominant warrior confederacy of nations that ruled over the eastern Great Lakes region. They dominated their region with a might unrivaled by nearly any other peoples of the Americas, 
even after Europeans made contact. And while their religious beliefs differed from the Christian Europeans that started to colonize their land, they're subjected to the same psychological processes that create naive realism as those who followed the old world religions. The spiritual ceremonies conducted by the Haudenosaunee felt just as right as a Christian going to church on Sundays because it was their own super-narrative. More often than not, when white or black children grew up enveloped in Native American culture, or when Native Americans were brought up within American and European culture, each followed the super-narrative of the one that raised and included them not the one their ancestors worshipped. Children aren't born drawn to being Christians or any other religion. They are products of the culture that raised them. And this is because if you go far enough back in history, people from all cultures around the world have the same single human ancestors, a genetic Adam and a genetic Eve and their biblical Garden of Eden was the continent of Africa. But genetic Adam and Eve's origins do not coincide with the famous origin story put forth by the Abrahamic religions. The primary difference is that genetic Adam and Eve almost certainly did not exist at the same time likely separated by thousands of years sometime between 100,000 and 200,000 years ago. Religious stories were there to fill in the blanks for something much more awesome. They weren't spawned from mud or out of nowhere, but instead the products of billions of years of life fighting for survival consuming and replicating itself in the process, creating every life form that we know today, along with the billions of extinct species that came before us, whole ecosystems who dominated this earth for millions of years that have since come and gone. And even more, we are directly related to each and every one of those species sharing an ancestor so old that it was only a single cell floating in the primordial oceans of Earth. Genetics has discovered that we all come from the same roots, plants, animals, and humans alike. While science hasn't confirmed a single one of humanity's myriad of religious super-narratives, it has provided us with little quirks of how humans, life, and the universe were created, whether it was by God or not. Science has told us the story of human and Earth's creation, and can even help us glimpse as far back as seconds after the beginning of the universe. There is verifiable evidence to back it up, creating a narrative not of divine inspiration, but instead of facts, or at least facts to the best of our knowledge. And when new evidence is presented that contradicts this narrative, 
then the scientific narrative changes. A sort of continuing revelation based on actual evidence rather than a static and suspicious supernarrative. And that's what makes living in a post-information technology world so different than the rest of history. We can find out the facts on how things were created, how our minds work, and why people have the beliefs that they do. In other words, we have a lot of the information our ancestors were missing when they were trying to fill in the blanks of understanding. And on an intellectual level, we do understand that. But on a more visceral level, we still have an impulse to pursue the cultural supernarrative embedded in our government and religious institutions that can sometimes fly in the face of facts and evidence. Pursuing a religious supernarrative in spite of the facts sets the stage for a lesson on hubris that future cultures will tell their children for generations. A lesson about the lengths we will go to believe our own lies that will leave in its wake a greater disappointment than anything that happened with the Millerites. Beliefs held by the likes of Christian Zionists, as one example, hope to encourage conflict in a country with nuclear weapons to bring about the end times. Scientists and academics are as fallible as everyone else and studies can be too complex, too presumptuous, or too convoluted. But it is the best way that we've found to keep ourselves honest as a species to one another. The scientific method, peer review, and independent repetition, regardless of your supernarrative, are checks on our own psychological shortcomings. The chafing between religion and science has been felt for centuries. When religious institutions denounce evidence-based concepts on the structure of the universe, evolution, or human behavior, it forces people to make a choice about their supernarrative. But what problems can occur when someone sides with a faith-based solution over an evidence-based one? Scientific studies that have been done on religious belief yield results that explain believers' and non-believers' relationship to evidence. One study posed this scenario to both religious and non-religious Americans. Quote, a patient is suffering from a life-threatening ailment. A team of pastors and parishioners assemble around the bed for an hour a day, trying a new method of prayer therapy in the hope of curing the patient. After a week, the patient has survived the disease and is well on the way to recovery. How many more successful cases like this would you like to see before you are convinced that it was the prayer therapy that cured the patient. End quote. The results of this study found that religious people needed far less replications than non-religious people to believe a prayer therapy worked. 
In other words, they are more likely to accept faith-based solutions without evidence. But when pastors and parishioners in that scenario was replaced by doctors and nurses, and prayer therapy was replaced with medical therapy, both religious and non-religious people required a similar amount of evidence. This shows that religious people have a bias toward religious solutions and require substantially less evidence to believe they work. Surprisingly, even non-religious people also require less evidence to believe that a religious treatment works, demonstrating that all people, regardless of faith, have a bias in favor of supernatural treatments over natural medical solutions. The cause for this, because it is an American study, may be cultural. As our government institutions reinforce Christian concepts, even non-religious people are capable of having a bias in favor of religious miracles. But studies like these clearly highlight how Americans, and more likely humans in general, have a tendency to accept supernatural claims without much evidence, something that each new religious movement is a testament of, regardless of the century that they show up in. But this research should be embraced precisely because it is a mirror that accurately depicts our psychological tendencies and does not reinforce what we wish to hear. Even the evil queen does not smash her mirror when she learns about Snow White's beauty surpassing her own. The research brought forth by science and academia does not leave us in a world without wonder. Far from it. Research has only brought more questions needing to be answered, reinforcing the complex mysteries of the universe. Enigmas still abound about the universe, the creation of life, and the origin of humanity. Regardless of what is discovered, the only supernarrative that should be followed is one that aligns with the physical evidence from the Earth DNA, and careful observations, rather than a psychological misfire of a powerful person or a group of people who would prefer to smash the mirror of truth and hide from it. Famous psychologist Lee Ross has said the scientific method, quote, saves us from confirmation bias, end quote. But it also saves us from our naive realism. If we can recognize the authenticity of another person's experience, even if we fundamentally disagree with it, we can help prevent ourselves from dehumanizing the innocent. Because dehumanization is precisely what occurs when two competing supernarratives that are light on facts come into conflict with each other. And... As this world continues to shrink beneath humanity's technological interconnectedness, the consequences of not recognizing each other's humanity, regardless of belief, 
are more dire than ever. A good religion adapts with the facts. Because when religion starts to diverge from the facts, like when creationists push forth the idea that the earth was only created 6,000 years ago, or that evolution didn't occur, then it diverges with the truth that was written into the fabric of the universe. Even more, denial of such obvious facts alienates younger generations who can't, in good conscience, embrace something so verifiably false just because some egos are at stake. So, when there is no evidence of ancient Israelites ever being found in America, the LDS Church would benefit from cutting that out of their super-narrative because otherwise the results bring exactly what we see today, where younger people are increasingly turning away from religion completely. A super-narrative is only as good as where it fills in the gaps, where the facts are not known, not where it replaces facts with a fiction. Thousands of years ago, Far less was known about the Earth and its history, as well as how exactly the human mind worked. Religious narratives could take on a variety of forms because so much was unanswered compared to today. But now that we do know so much more, how can we go back? Who willingly embraces ignorance over knowledge? When a religion refuses to acknowledge and accept both the way we are as well as the way the earth is, then we do not have a true religion. Today, we live in a globally interconnected world where loved ones are now spread around every continent on the globe. We do not live in an age of crusades and jihads, but instead, our connectedness has intertwined us all, made us dependent on one another, whether we like it or not, whether we know it or not, and most importantly, whether we believe it or not. It is a family reunion, unlike our species has ever seen since those ancient days in Africa. And more than ever, we could benefit from recognizing our similarities over our differences. People under 40 are now far less likely to go to services, pray, or identify with a religious group than people 40 and over, according to Pew Research in 2018. And the generational gap is greatest in the places that are most interconnected, such as Europe, North America, and South Korea. In the United States, there is an 18-point gap between the older and younger religious group. And while some may argue that it's related to a decrease in morality, there is no evidence to support such a claim. More likely, Younger people are turning away from religion because there is a growing disconnect between the generations. 
Religious leaders who own private jets and mansions don't relate to younger generations growing up today who are looking for their moral compass. The wealth accumulated over the 20th century by Christian leaders, whether they be evangelical, Mormon, or Catholic, has not related to the Americans who have become the first generation to struggle with the problem of not having a better lifestyle than their parents. Pat Robertson is not Charles Grandison Finney, and the current president of the LDS Church is not Joseph Smith. What made these American beliefs surge was their closeness and likeness to the people of their time in the 19th century frontier of America. The 21st century religious leaders can feel as out of touch as the Catholic Church during the Renaissance with money, corruption, and politics taking primacy. Another reason that younger people are likely feeling disconnected from their religious organizations is because of the rampant hypocrisy and convoluted messages sent by them. Catholics endure tedious guidelines for confirmation and are not allowed to use protection during intercourse while predatory sexual abuse scandals endemically rock the church just as they did during the age of Pope Sixtus IV. Somewhere along the line, evangelicals decided to draw their bright line against abortions, causing it to be one of the most controversial topics in America for nearly a century. Yet other well-established evangelical denominations support a woman's right to choose. In fact, the United Methodist Church is pro-choice, the very same Methodism that burned over Western New York and ignited the country for evangelicalism. So, while it may seem that all evangelicals unite unyieldingly against abortions, many do not agree. Creationists push scientifically invalid origin stories that are expected to be taught in schools, next to the facts and treated with the same validity, despite many other Christians understanding how preposterous it is. Still yet other evangelical leaders staunchly and uniformly promote a pro-Israeli agenda, beyond what even American Jews think is appropriate, strictly because of the real belief that it will hasten Christ's second coming. Mormons are required to overlook the mountain of evidence indicating that Smith's story that became the Book of Mormon was highly likely to be fabricated, an amalgamation of popular Second Great Awakening stories combined with the secret rituals of Freemasonry. Just because religious leaders may have done less than pure things does not mean that we need to either embrace the misdeeds and lies or scrap the entire religion. We can acknowledge the wrongs and right them unequivocally. This isn't 19th century America anymore. Joseph Smith's frequent and highly improbable claims are now definitively disproven. William Miller 
has already shown us what happens if we believe too strongly in prophecy over reason, catapulting evangelical leaders into high positions of money and power do not make America or Americans more religious. The fad of spiritualism has warned us that blind faith primarily breeds corruption. And too many religious people are presumptuously certain as to what God's will truly is. The Christian prism has larger fractures and a more glittering array of colors than ever before, and depending on one's position around it, determines what is or isn't Christian. But this intra-faith strife is happening across all world religions, not merely Christianity. The trend of younger people turning away from all religion is happening across the globe, particularly in places that are educated and have access to information, because intra-faith conflict is just as rampant as interfaith conflict. Too many people are presuming too much when it comes to how we, as people, are supposed to live. And it is now up to us to decide whose super-narrative we can all get behind. New religious movements have demonstrated that there are no shortages of individuals willing to step up and tell the world how to live lacking any type of qualification save divine inspiration. But history has shown that regardless of which messages gain traction, the messages between successful religious movements are not consistent. Consistency is found instead in potential personal motivations of the individuals leading the movement as well as the needs being met by the followers. Decisions for which religious orientation to follow in the highest levels of government aren't dictated by divine will, but instead by human emotions, such as greed, as in the case of King Henry VIII's insistence on Britain's switch to Protestantism, or vindictive spite, like Queen Mary had against her father demanding the entire nation switch back to Catholicism. Or naive optimism, like the Puritans who came to New England. Never in the course of history has a religious decision been clearly indicated by God, but instead was always the will of one or more people who wanted it to be true rather than knowing it to be true. And this is because religious institutions fall victim to the same trappings as all other human-created institutions. Some might feel that the solution to this is to have a highly centralized and closely regulated religious structure, like the Catholic Church or the LDS Church. But too much centralization in religion, and suddenly, censorship dictates policy when faced with contradictory evidence, 
such as the heliocentric model of the solar system, or the years of suppression of Mormon-related legal issues. Wealth amasses at the highest point and is hoarded in a way that raises moral concerns. The LDS Church was calculated to have amassed $100 billion in assets in 2020, making it the second most valuable religious organization after the Catholic Church whose value is often described as incalculable due to the countless priceless artifacts that it holds. Centralized religion breeds corruption, as it did for Catholicism during the Renaissance with indulgences, or today with child sex abuse scandals. Even highly centralized new religious movements are rife with scandals and abuse. But decentralize the process, and suddenly denominations turn on each other as Lutherans turned on Anabaptists. Decentralization pushes boundaries to such a degree that religions like Mormonism fit under the same umbrella of Christianity as Catholicism, although the two belief systems share almost nothing in common. Suddenly, the supernarrative warps and changes to justify nearly anything, depending on the brand, just as it did with the Oneida community and its plural marriages and sexual practices with those going through puberty. This leaves the discussion on what exactly is the shared divine message between Christians lost in the wide variety of beliefs and motivations. A false sense of closeness can occur when denominations ignore their intricate details and combine under a wide umbrella like Christianity, superficially believing they have similar beliefs and ideals. But even if everybody converted to any denomination of Christianity that they wanted and no other religions existed in the world, the differences between the denominations would be so stark that the problems that occur between interfaith religions would pop up in exactly the same way. Some problems within religion are the same ones that any human institutions face because they are truly human-derived rather than divinely led. If there was a long-standing message Christians brought forth from the distant past. It is one of nonviolence and love, a message meant to unify in turning the other cheek in the face of violent oppression. But a message like this stands contradictory to so many modern evangelical directions. Doug Coe's dark Christian agenda succeeded in spite of this message, and many evangelical leaders look positively eager for a war between Muslims and Jews in the Middle East. The United States has increasingly cloaked itself with the word God in everything from its money to the Pledge of Allegiance, and yet it remains an aggressive military power that squeezes weaker nations around the globe to fit its will, creating the very pressures felt by the disenfranchised of the Roman Empire. 
the sort of people that were drawn to a figure like Jesus. The Roman Empire had a confusing and unforgiving system of taxation that would directly place most of the suffering on those who could pay the least. Periphery territories of the empire, stymied by their ruthless and unrelenting overlords, continually gave concessions to the Romans for a fraction of some power, or sometimes merely just to keep their lives. The empire rested handily on the backs of slaves brought in from these territories, as well as those deemed to be criminals within the empire itself. To be a land-owning Roman was good, but to be nearly anybody else was a different story. Jesus Christ appealed to disenfranchised people of a Roman system that was more in love with its thrust than its people. And today, it is the United States that stands astride over the world with a similar, unforgiving dominance espoused by the Roman Empire, dismissive of problems outside of their borders. The United States has the full-throated support of Christian leaders who benefit from a system that provides them with unspendable amount of wealth while scandal after scandal is broken and weathered across the Christian spectrum. If Jesus were to return today, it is the largely Christian United States that looks most like the Roman Empire, regularly justifying atrocities for some perceived greater benefit. If Jesus were to come back today, is merely donning the term Christian enough or would he be more discerning? It is also true that there is still the selfless side of Christianity. There are many Christian organizations that are essential in supporting the neediest people in some of the most dangerous and malnourished places around the world. Wealthy Christians from across the globe pack up their super-narrative and fly to far-flung countries to build houses, dig ditches, and provide medical aid to those most in need. This sacrifice by these people do deserve to be recognized and are examples of how caring people can be to their fellow humans when led by their faith. Likewise, Giving to those in need is also one of the five pillars of Islam, and zedekah, or charitable giving, is compelled by Judaism. So, could it be that a universal message is being seen through the debris of differences here? All religions believe in giving back to their world and making it a better place to live by helping those in need without discrimination of circumstance. Charitable work on large scales is something that motivates and drives countless people, regardless of faith, the world over. It's evidence of something unifying across people, but still more likely to be the product of our psychological wiring than a divine universal message. The problem with religions, including Christianity, 
isn't its charity and selflessness to helping people in need. But when Christianity simultaneously supports a system that forces people into a situation which requires such charity, is where criticism gets legitimate. If Christianity is whispering into the halls of power for Pat Robertson or Doug Coe to make deals with international warlords that are highly profitable, while simultaneously showcasing their charity to those people who are victims to those power structures, it is then that the credibility of Christianity suffers. Christians fought for the Haudenosaunee to keep their land, just as hard as other Christians worked to force it away from them. But the side of Christians that won does not preclude that it was the side that was right. Were the Christians that argued for the Haudenosaunee to keep their land from the likes of the Ogden Land Company wrong because they ultimately lost? Was their interest of keeping peace and humanizing the Haudenosaunee in the eyes of Americans unchristian? Or were the Christians that supported Ogden's underhanded dealings wrong? What was lost when Christian Americans flooded into the frontier of New York after the Revolutionary War when they snuffed out the Haudenosaunee influence on the growing nation? Do Christian organizations even take the time to have an official stance on such questions to help guide morality? Or is it just brushed over, not meant to be looked at too closely because, at the end of the day, it was a win for Christians? Ultimately, the Haudenosaunee, who were not coaxed into Christian conversion, saw a religion with two faces. One that takes, while the other consoles them for their loss while refusing to correct the action taken by their followers. Is this two-faced Christianity the sort that Jesus supported? And have Christian organizations today taken any meaningful steps to change this? The lessons from the burned-over district are not merely lessons for 19th century New York frontier Christians, but lessons that cross both time and faith. The stories that happened in the wilderness of New York are just a footnote in the history of Christianity, and yet it could take a lifetime to study. The religious revolutions that have happened throughout the centuries are rich with philosophy and thoughtful debate that no single person could possibly hope to truly understand it all. Religion has value, and it is important to the development of the human mind. And even if it is true that a smaller percentage of people around the world are religious, the numbers of the religious continue to grow for nearly all major religions. As humanity is pushed into the future, more religious people will continue to exist on this planet than ever before in history. It is clear that religion is not going silently into the night, but will continue to be a stronger influence than ever before. 
those faithful who will lead the many through the 21st century and beyond have new issues to respond to, unlike the world has ever faced. But without acknowledging some basic facts, their guidance and direction will steer our species into a reckless future, rather than one that lives up to the ideals of their prophets and messiahs. Most importantly, religious leaders need to recognize the cocktail of cognitive processes that are happening at all times to help bring awareness on how the makeup of the brain impacts our thoughts on religion. Loss aversion, sunk costs, the placebo effect, perspective, transference, confabulation, locus of control, human pattern recognition, reframing, the Barnum effect, and naive realism are all impacting every one of our decisions. Even more, humans have a predisposition to belief, a penchant for epiphanies, a craving for a super-narrative, a desire for the counterintuitive, and an inherent compulsion that physical objects serve a greater purpose. And it is these cognitive processes that form our respective religious or non-religious beliefs. These same processes will continue to create new religious movements, and regardless of how young or old a religion is, each will continue to provide a social support system which includes other followers. Religious leaders of the 21st century will need to stave from the siren call of religious exceptionalism, which requires a person to believe that any one faith is better than the next and avoiding any inconvenient facts that might demonstrate otherwise. A 21st century religion needs to recognize that in order to be a universal truth, that it can't be steeped in otherizing and exceptionalism. History can inform our future. What sort of leadership has our past provided us that we want to follow? Do we want a bloated and corrupt centralized authority that makes us pay for our living and dead relatives' sins, as the Catholic Church did during the Middle Ages? Do we want petty leaders who force a faith on a nation for personal reasons, as in the case of King Henry VIII or his daughter Queen Mary? Do we want to trick and deceive honest people while discounting their worldview like the Ogden Land Company did to the Haudenosaunee? Do we want to only help others who go to church and freeze out those who don't, like they did in Rochester around Finney's visit? Do we want leaders that have a fascination with intimate relations with young children, as in the case of, but not limited to, John Humphrey Noyes of the Oneida community? Do we want a leader that inspires us to demonstrate blind faith in its purest form, like William Miller? Do we want leaders that obsess over prophecy like Ellen Gould White or Charles Taze Russell that came out of the Millerite movement? 
Do we want to follow self-proclaimed experts on the spiritual realm without evidence like Sir William Crookes and Arthur Conan Doyle did? Do we want organizations like Lilydale to guide our grieving process by claiming communication with another realm but providing no evidence that it's true? Do we want to follow leaders that have given us demonstrably false interpretations and information about our history, like Joseph Smith? What about a person who leads with a hidden network of Christians that aren't open about their true beliefs, like Doug Coe? Is it okay so long as he made the National Prayer Breakfast an American tradition? Or how about the leadership of insanely rich pastors like Pat Robertson, who find themselves mired in hypocritical scandals? Or are there better leaders that history has provided us? Martin Luther stood against the corruption of the Catholic Church. Roger Williams and William Penn, the founders of the states of Rhode Island and Pennsylvania, did not set out to force a religion onto their residents. There are the Quakers and the American board missionary that stood by the Haudenosaunee before, during, and after their deception by the Ogden Land Company. Charles Grandison Finney stood up for the equality of women and the abolition of slavery. The post-Noise Oneida community developed into a business model that supported the lowest among them, while those at the top didn't take too much. Eleanor Sidgwick dedicated her life to empowering women and finding the connection to the spirit realm, but could not support spiritualism when no evidence of its proof panned out. Harry Houdini and Rose Mackenberg dedicated major parts of their lives to revealing the truth to people rather than immorally deceiving others for more profit. In the same stories that hold the bad actors, the good and moral actors are also there, although they might not always be the ones who win. Perhaps of all the 19th century museum displays discussed in this text, the one that provides the most hope for the future of religious direction might be the most American of all, the Chautauqua Institution. It is an American attempt at finding common ground between the religious beliefs across this planet and openly respect differences. And while it is not a perfect model for religious conversation, it is a real one. Visited by some of America's most famous politicians, entertainers, and speakers, it is not a place to rub elbows and make business deals, but is an American home to discuss morality while openly acknowledging and accepting differing opinions. And it was this institution that had spawned an American movement across the 19th century, proving that there is precedent for a religious America that embraces truth and knowledge, as well as wisdom and morals. It is strange that a place so deeply American can today feel so strangely foreign under the inflexible super-narrative of mainstream 21st century evangelicalism. 
the 21st century religions are sailing into a new global age, like passing through a strait out of the sea of regional powers and into the great wide ocean of globalization beyond. With land not far behind, the short-sighted crewmen are emboldened and reckless that the ocean isn't so hard after all. But out in front of the ship, the wise captains know the waters they're sailing into are dangerous and uncharted. The storms are worse, the resources scarce, and one wrong move could jeopardize the whole ship. A captain's braggadocio so close to the safety of the shore means nothing for when the ship is far out at sea and the crew needs to work together to survive. Today, we have crossed those straits of regional religions into the globalized ocean of beliefs. New tactics for navigation against the elements and protection of the future of humanity as well as all life on the planet, will rest largely in the hands of these ships that carry hundreds of millions of people. Their food supply, fresh water, and all other life-giving necessities are shared between the boats, meaning that if one or two go down, all could perish. And it just so happens that the captains of these ships are all religious. Will their loyalties be to the objective truths we now know about humans, life, and the universe? Or will they feed into the cognitive biases, supernarratives, and naive realism that are often created by our own minds? At its root, religion is about making moral decisions. Decisions that we feel are right because they are not just for the betterment of ourselves, but the universal betterment. Being aware of the lessons of the past on what happens when faith becomes disconnected from reason, will religious leaders be strong enough to not fall victim to the same errors? Do they have the strength to unflinchingly look at their own beliefs and admit that they have presumed too much and truly respect differences of those who do not buy into their super-narrative? Or will they fall victim to the human fallibilities that so many religious leaders of the past had and push our planet to the brink of self-destruction due to each one's inflexibility of belief? Each captain will have to look towards their true moral compass to guide us into our successful, globalized future, one that has learned from the mistakes of the past and is armed with the knowledge that our ancestors did not have access to. But if they instead choose to look towards the compass that only reflects what they wish to see, then what difference is there? between that and true sin.
thank you for listening to this episode of No Character Limit. Every episode, the sources that I used are located in the description if you would like to check them out. In addition, please consider liking, rating, and reviewing if you enjoyed this podcast as each one goes to help further the reach of this podcast for new people to hear. Each episode requires hours in research, writing, recording, and editing. So if you feel that what you just heard is worth a donation of any size, please go to the description and follow the links for that. Each donation comes with a free PDF copy of a writing piece of your choice, no matter the size of your donation, and you get a lot of extra features with that, including a lot of the artwork and graphs and pictures, as well as the descriptions that I don't include in the podcast. If you would like updates for new episodes, you can follow No Character Limit at mastodon.world. And finally, if you have a question, comment, or even a correction, please feel free to reach out at nocharacterlimit at protonmail.com. Thank you again for listening.